0: So, today in the reading corner, I'm really pleased to be welcoming Kira Millwood Hargrave and Tom DeFreston, the husband and wife creative team who've put together this brilliant new book, an incredibly moving new book, Julia and the Shark. To give you just a little bit of an insight uh, into the book, Julia and her parents are moving from Cornwall to the island of Unst uh, in the Shetlands for the summer. Julia's mother is a marine biologist researching the Greenland shark, which is its estimated can live to be 400 years old. Julia's father is repairing the lighthouse, which is going to be their temporary home. Julia sees some differences in her parents. Her mother is adventurous, follows her desire lines, where her father perhaps is more uh, bound by the rules of the beaten path. The stunning artwork in this book gives the story a mythic feel in which the lives of Julia and her family are intertwined in what feels like a dance in the cosmos and the deepest oceans. Here to help me explore a little bit more and to give their interpretation on the story, I'm so pleased to be welcoming Kieran and Tom. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: It's a story about many things. And I'm really interested, Kieran, if we could ask you to tell us something about the journey of this story. For a long time, Tom and
2: I have been looking for a story to tell together. And when I say together, I mean that as equal partners. We wanted to create something that needed us both and needed words and images. And as soon as Julia arrived, as a fully formed and speaking in my ear, I knew that I'd found a character that I want to spend time with. And then the idea of the shark, which is the other really central character, if you like, in this book, that just provided the perfect vehicle for Tom to really take on the meat of this story and allow us to investigate depths that I wouldn't have been able to tell alone. Um, So the shark as you mentioned, is this incredible animal who can live to 400, 500 years old, moves through the coldest seas at enormous depths and, and is almost mythic in its feel. But in this book, it also becomes a metaphor for mental illness and um, sort of this, this darkness that stalks the story. And without Tom's art, that wouldn't have been so apparent in the reading experience. So really the way it came about was Julia arriving and the shark not far behind and instantly both of us understanding this was a story that could only be told with both of us.
0: Did the story itself emerge in conversation between you? How did that process work?
1: I think from early on we had like the shape of a world and these central characters and so from the very beginning we were in collaboration discussing that and what that would look like but then the next stage it was kind of important that the story got mapped out in words first. um, And then it was after the first draft that I kind of then came in and started to do a first draft of the images. And then there was kind of constant back and forth because I think the first draft was maybe 60,000 words. Yes. It's it's halved probably.
2: It's halved, exactly. And that is purely through being allowed to condense, condense, condense. And also having those images as that extra dimension to be able to sort of leap into is so freeing as a writer to accept the limits of language mm. and to allow that visual experience to take over it's been it was quite exhilarating really
0: so julia arrives on this island and to begin with it feels like an adventure because she's going to stay in this lighthouse what is it about lighthouses do you think they they appear in film uh, in literature in art what is it about the lighthouse that is such a strong image for a story like this.
1: I think a few things. I think one, that obviously because of the nature of their function, they exist on that point between land and sea. And that point between land and sea and ev- is so rich with meaning and that movement between, so it's that liminal space. But obviously their function is very literal, like a light in the dark to help guide the way. And it's such a small leap from that, that light, the lighthouse can both be a lighthouse, but light in the dark is you know, a pretty literal metaphor.
2: Also a place you know that denotes safety but also danger because it's only there because of danger. It's a place that feels isolated um, as well as cocooning. So I think yeah liminal is the best possible word really to describe a lighthouse and and it, it has all these dualities that are so interesting to explore as a storyteller because you never want things to be black and white. You know, I think you always want things to have those shades of grey. And the lighthouse itself has all those inherent within it before you even start moving Mm. your characters through their
0: story. When we talk about the plot a little bit more and the characters, Julia does have a friend that she meets on the island uh, called Kin, Was he there at the beginning or was or did you feel that you needed to give her a friend of her own age um, in in the story? It's interesting
2: because often I will write characters that are almost too self-sufficient and self-contained and then understand that part of the function of a children's book is to talk about relationships and, and friendships. But honestly, Ken was he was right there. You know, this was his island his lighthouse first and Julia is a bit of an interloper so he's a local boy whose parents run the local laundromat and uh, they are of Indian origin and he feels an outsider in many ways because he's caught between these two cultures that he feels very strongly and him and Julia they're fast friends but it's not always an easy friendship. Julia is quite blinkered in the way that she sees the world and quite limited and Kin manages to broaden her horizons literally as well because he's very into stargazing and what I love about that relationship is how much they take and learn from each other so yes he was actually very integral from the early days of writing this book that said his his role definitely developed through Mm -hmm. various drafts to become more and more central.
0: He's very interested in, the, in space, in the cosmos, and uh, Julia first meets him up on the, the railings of the lighthouse, where he's scaled up the ladder to um, have a look from there. And she's very interested in the depths of the ocean, and she gets a bit conflicted when she wants to learn more about the stars, but it's not the ocean. It doesn't go in her yellow (laughs) notebook. And that sort of brings me a little bit to Tom, because your imagery, your paintings could be the skies, you know, the Milky Ways above, or they could be the oceans. They sort of melded into one, I felt, throughout the story.
1: I'm really glad you said that, because I wanted that sense of something that felt almost vertiginous, but in both directions but either the space you're looking down into in the depths of the ocean or that kind of dizzying sense you get when you look up into a you know a clear night sky and the ways in which they both conflict each other but also mirror each other. So I wanted the landscapes of the images, I suppose, to kind of exist in that kind of slightly ambiguous space because they obviously are landscapes, but they're also psychological landscapes as well. And, the, yeah, the night sky felt as important as the ocean, even though you don't see kin because actually it felt that the images are always, they're Julia's internal unseen world, really, mm. as opposed to a kind of a naturalistic vision of what they're looking at. So, mm. yeah, that's really pleasing that you picked that out.
0: And sometimes we do see Julia in the image, and she's often quite embryonic in the way that she's curled over, and the shape of a shark or the shape of the, the skies or the ocean seem to envelop her. Um, Was that, again, something that you were trying to evoke there?
1: I think it felt really important to create a character who was somewhere on the spectrum of you giving her enough identity that she feels like an individual. She feels believable, but you see very little of her face, really. Mm. I wanted her to be open enough that um, children felt they could kind of inhabit her. And those poses, as you described, kind of embryonic and folded over. And, you know, at points, she almost feels slightly animal in how she is. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it felt really important that I didn't reveal too much of her in the images. I didn't suddenly want it to be a kind of naturalistic face that locks her in.
0: Tell us a bit about how the images themselves were created. They are painted, are they? or Are they collaged or a mixed media?
1: They're a real mix. So I, I made about... 2000 paintings and drawings of various scales and then basically what I did was photographed and scanned up to the effering so I had this kind of huge database of surfaces of characters of bits of iconography and symbols and then I started to layer them up um, to collage them together but digitally and then that, that allowed me to play with opacity and transparency. So almost nothing that appears in the book exists. As a singular image elsewhere. They're almost all constructed of multiple images pulled together. And particularly the kind of surfaces that you mentioned, those kind of landscapes and those mood mm. scenes, they were, I suppose, kind of large scale um, paintings, often on paper where the ink was kind of soaked in and through the paper. That felt important because I wanted scale and space. So I wanted to create a book that's this size and intimate and personal but then felt like a thing that you fall into and it opens up and has this this expanse that maybe feels almost impossible.
0: So I know that you are an artist and that you work on big canvases or to big scale. Is this the first time that you've worked on a book of this kind?
1: It's the first time I've I've worked in any way really as an illustrator. And so that felt like kind of incredible challenge because obviously the images have to serve like such a clear function. And so it felt quite nerve wracking, but actually in the end, once... I got into it, amazingly liberating to have that kind of focus and function and actually, again, to do with scale, like to realise the joy of making something this size, that you have this one-on-one relationship as opposed to something that's big and bombastic and hangs on the wall.
0: There's something else that has to happen with the book over which you suddenly lose a little bit of control called a printing process. And I've not seen any of your work live, as it were, but I imagine it to be quite textured. And I wondered whether in the printing process, there's always a flattening out. Did you have anxiety about that?
1: <laughs> oh, God, I had huge anxiety. I suppose I'm quite obsessive and controlling over what would happen in that process of hand, basically of handing it over.
0: Kieran, coming back to you for a moment, I want to talk about the narrative Style, so it's quite a classic storytelling voice and it's interspersed with dream-like passages where Julia is thinking about this shark that her mother is going to pursue um, did they flow as part of the narrative or were they written afterwards and inserted how did what was that process They very much flowed.
2: I do tend anyway to write in sequence, I suppose, because I'm so always mindful of the reader's experience. So I always want to be looking at it through that lens. But the, yeah, the the dream sequences, they came at very natural interludes. They sort of, they act as sort of punctuation I I suppose if you like a pause but also what Tom was talking about that about that vertiginousness that drop into a moment where Julia you know she's often moving in this narrative literally (laughs) moving through time and these are moments where she's sort of stuck in that way that you often are in dreams where you're going to the most incredible places but you're pinned to your to your bed and and that was very much the my experience of writing them was I'd get to a point where it just felt like it needed that moment to pause and really go into what was really going on with her. Because really this is, as Tom was saying earlier, it's about her internal landscape a lot of stuff happens in the book I do still want it to feel very engaging and and like an adventure story but really it's a bit of a character study and a bit of a a moment an invitation for a reader to really look at someone and see them in all their complexities and and develop a bit of empathy I suppose around the way other people's minds work
0: Mm. and it's also you know her coming to understand her mother you know we often don't really know our parents they reveal themselves to us through our lives and you know every so often you get that insight into them as people and not just as parents and I think that's what's happening to Julia in this story she's coming to understand her mother as a person and as a person apart from her and and more to the point
2: the fact that Julia is not an extension of her mother and that's Both a very terrifying and liberating thing, Um, initially terrifying and ultimately liberating. And that very much mirrors my own experience of growing up and seeing my mum as this sort of monolith and this this extraordinary, almost mythic person. And I'll never forget realising her name wasn't mum. Her name was Andrea and she was a person and she existed before I came along and, and she has her own you know, fears and really, yes, this book is so about a child realizing her parents are different people from her and that that's okay and that she doesn't have responsibility for them that she is a child and she doesn't have to be all things to all people she can just be herself Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of children feel they feel responsibility for their parents when really of course it should be the other way around
0: Mm. I wonder if you could read us one of those dream-like sequences so we can get a sense of the uh, the language of
2: course So this comes at sort of the midpoint of the book when Julia's mum is out on a stormy sea. The bed was a boat and the sheets turned to foam under my fingers. The whole room was rocking and above me the roof was gone replaced with lightning lashing the low thick clouds, long tongues of fire furling and unfurling, tracing veins of burning silver, but silent. It raged and raged without a sound. And there was something in the water it was deep, moving slowly through the black sea. The water rose above the rolling shape, huge and swallowing as the sky. I couldn't move, couldn't see it. It was quiet, all so quiet, I felt caught behind glass. I couldn't turn my head, but I knew it was rising, knew it was opening a
0: mouth wide as the world. Mm. Tom, can you describe the artwork to us at that point in the story?
1: Um, so on the first page, there's um an image of Julia in her bedroom, and then the door is half open, and there's this outline of a shark that's kind of entered through the door and under her bed. But because it's an outline, it also feels like it could be a shadow or it could be a space kind of cut out of her bedroom. And at that point, I think. But, well, behind that whole scene, it should also be said, is this kind of ghostly, just about there, surface, this kind of storm system that's splitting apart and actually starts to reference some of the things in the text, so the tracing veins, the lightning lashing. And I wanted to make sure that the image, in terms of how it sat on the page, started to kind of construct the atmosphere of a dream. So it started to have this kind of uncanny, discombobulating feel this sense of like a reality that's just been slightly twisted and turned on its head so that you feel kind of slightly I suppose unsettled really and not sure what's real and what's not real and then as you turn the page for the, the kind of the second bit of Kieran's description of this form uh, beneath the sea that's when there's this um in the book it's actually one of the tracing paper outlines of the shark kind of emerging and that was actually made by working on these sheets of paper where I'd have an outline of the shark, and then I'd work with permanent ink and acetone, so basically the stuff you use for nail polish remover. And I'd pour that on top of this shape and basically leave it, so it would leave this kind of imprint that bleeds out, almost like water or like a storm into the page or, and, and across it as well, so that the shark is kind of forming and unforming, So that hopefully you have a sense of something hovering and lurking just beneath the surface or even within the surface.
0: Let's talk about yellow. I'm interested in the kind of symbolism of colour. And yellow can mean many things. I'm sure it does mean many things in this in this story, actually. Julia wears her mother's yellow Macintosh. She writes in a yellow notebook, obviously, the two colour printing. It's just yellow that we see there. The lighthouse has a yellow beam. This must be a conscious decision to have this yellow running through it.
2: It definitely is. So from our first conversations about creating a story together, we wanted to very early on decide the the language of the book, the visual language of the book. And Yellow felt like a natural choice because to me it's hope and it's it's spring, it's daffodils, it's stars, it's light and also uh, from very early on I had this image of the yellow raincoat and that is what Julia's mum wears and so it's Julia's favourite colour essentially because she here worships her mother and so everything she has is sort of a tribute. So she has her yellow notebook where she writes down all her sea facts that her mum tells her. And I especially love a touch of Alice and the Designers, which was to have yellow birds. Mm-hmm. At really important points in the book that mm-hmm. really have come to represent Julia to me. Mm-hmm. Um, this, you know, the specialness of every individual, you know, the extraordinary in the ordinary.
1: It's worth saying, I suppose, that the fact the rest of the book is monochromatic means that you've got this world that's like either dealing with these very high contrast blacks and whites or at other points as he's really subtle in between greys and at one point we thought about the whole thing being full color but it was so important that it wasn't because that's what then makes that yellow completely pop and it felt really important and i don't mean playing games in a clever way but the game you could play with what what does yellow mean when it's in in the lighthouse's light what does it mean when it's what Julia's wearing or when it's a bird or when at one point the shark becomes completely yellow as well and I think in each individual instance it means something subtly different but in the broader sense it's kind of obviously the symbol of hope and light.
0: Hmm. Interesting there's a word that you use desire path and you use it twice in the book and when somebody uses something twice it sort of makes me notice <laughs> so it's used early on where Julia's mother notices by the lighthouse that somebody's used a desire path. That means a path that people have just made. It's not the official path that they should be walking up. And then later at Greenham, use that word again. It made me think that actually this is about whether you follow your desire path or you stick to the path. It absolutely is. and I,
2: And it's also about damage and it's about, you know, what your will can inflict on those around you. Her mum thinks nothing of tramping through the undergrowth. And that's not a judgment on her as a good or bad person. It's just a reflection of her will. Her mum will take the most direct path to get what she wants, heedless of the damage that she's doing to the landscape she's treading underfoot or indeed the people around her who maybe need her to take more care not only of them, but also of herself. Because I always think of Desire Lines as so romantic and it's all very well and good, but you know, leave only footsteps, but you have to tread carefully. You have to take care. You have to understand that you are not the centre of everything, that you are part of something bigger and that you need to respect other people's boundaries. And, you know, it's so absolutely, I'm so glad you picked up on the repeated use of that because I do think There's something actually quite complex to be said about so many books are sort of like forge your own path, do it at any cost. And actually, we are all part of a community and we are all interlinked. And I think a lot of this book is also about Julia understanding that she can mess up and she can inflict damage through her privilege. And she doesn't mean to, but she does. And she learns from it and she becomes a better person through that
0: which may just bring us back briefly to Julia's dad who's a much quieter presence in the book but he does fix the lighthouse and he is the one that can restore some balance into the life of this family I love the dad because my reaction to him
2: was I was like he's a necessary evil he's boring he's this he's that but he is the anchor, he is the lighthouse for this family, he is the safe harbour and it felt really important also to portray for Julia to have two parents, to have two parents who are happy together and in love and for the mental illness intrudes on that and and destabilises that and that's when you see the value of that balancing presence that stability that consistency and constancy mm. uh, so I absolutely fell in love <laughs> with
0: him um I just want to ask you both um, what it's been like working on this project together what you've actually gained each of you gained from the experience of working with the other in this way
1: I think it's we work incredibly differently so Kieran tends to have an idea that like will form in her head, almost in a kind of a composite for often years. And then it, it seems to me almost like an act of magic that then it just comes out almost as if fully formed. Whereas I am more kind of dive head into like the start of an idea for something and then just let it kind of form in front of me. So I get kind of taken over by the process and then I become completely obsessive and compulsive about it until it's finished. And I think we thought that was going to be a real kind of butting of heads. But for some reason, this project found its own kind of rhythm really beautifully and easily. It <laughs> felt
2: very much like we were in synergy, like there was real, we were of the same mind. We knew exactly what we wanted to achieve and we were both working towards that. And it was it was a joy, if I'm honest. It was mm. far better than either of us expected we're both very headstrong people both very you know strident and I think we really gave each other the space and respect that we needed to create this together and it has been at every stage something that is a collaboration you know it was really you can't
0: extract each other
2: from the making of it
0: well it is a beautiful beautiful thing and, you know, just thank you so much for talking to me today and taking me even deeper into my response to Julia and the Shark. Thank you very much. Thank,
1: well, thank you. you so much.
2: In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, Visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.